we're going to share uh, in a continuation of the story. This is the second week of Lent, um, and we're looking at the life of Jesus from the beginning of his ministry all the way to Easter. And so uh, this is Jesus now um, up north. And so let's read God's good word together. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. A more practiced Brandon Carpenter can sink a nail with three heads. And an experienced Carpenter can sink one with two heads. but only an alpha knows how to drive a nail with a single hit. <laughs> That's pretty good. Are you an alpha carpenter? Does that, does that seem like a good idea to you? That's how you're going to build your house? Just sitting nails around and then just wham! Jesus Christ, the master carpenter. You see, everybody understood Messiahship one way. Messiahship looks like this. It looks like King David. It looks like you kill Goliath and then your people reign. It looked like Solomon, wisdom, and you, you rule with wisdom in politics. The Messiah figures that people knew looked nothing like what Jesus was talking about. They understood carpentry... One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. No one understood Messiahship the way Jesus did it. He turned everything that they thought they knew about what King of Kings and Lord of Lords looked like with power, like Caesar, like Rome rolling into town with thousands and thousands and thousands of soldiers. That's what they thought Messiahship looked like. And Jesus turned it all the way upside down on its head. And to be fair, his disciples did not sign up for that. They thought of Jesus one way, and now Jesus, before he even gets to Jerusalem, is talking about something that looks 180 degrees different. Suffering, being rejected, and dying. And they want to know part of it. And we could understand why. But the wise person listens to the carpenter, to the master carpenter Jesus. And we're going to look at what that looks like today. So last week, we started the journey uh, with Jesus. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And, And what we find is that a transformed life is available to you. A transformed life is available to you, to everyone here. Even if you have given up hope, even if others find you a lost cause, even if you have just, if you've just given up, you've given up hope. I want you to know that there is hope for you and there's hope for anybody that you know. And you can start today. You don't have to wait another day to start your new life in Christ. And so we looked at that last week, and we did that by looking at Jesus in the very beginning of his ministry. The first thing that Jesus did uh, after 30 years at home was to be baptized. 
And when this happens, a voice identifies, God's voice identifies Jesus as his son. He says, this is my beloved, my son, listen to him. And so uh, if you'll remember with me from last week, in those days, Jesus comes from Nazareth, his hometown of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he sees the heavens torn apart and the spirit, God's own spirit, descends like a dove gently on him. And a voice comes from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And one of the things that we miss in this story is that we often think that it was somehow the devil that drives Jesus out into the desert. It's not. It's God himself. The very spirit that falls on Jesus, the scripture says, is the same spirit that pushes him out of his comfort zone and into the desert. Then Jesus is tempted, but he's not tempted by the spirit. He's tempted by the devil. Scripture says that that God himself doesn't tempt us, but he does place us in situations where we will be tempted. And it is God's will that you not fall in those temptations, but that you overcome them. In the same way that you get stronger doing push-ups or lifting weights or going for a short run, and you get stronger and stronger and stronger, the same thing is true in your spiritual life. That what God wants for you is to trust him today in small things so that tomorrow you can trust him in bigger things. And so the scripture says the spirit, right? The spirit immediately drives Jesus into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, which is a long time. And he's tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beast. And then here's the good news. And the angels waited on him. God didn't leave him to his own devices. It wasn't, um, you know, some terrible test where it was Jesus versus the forces of evil. No, God's kingdom was around all along, all along. So that all happens in chapter one. Um, the way the historic church looks at Lent is that we move through the life of Jesus, and so we're going to move forward seven chapters very quickly. And so here's the setup to the problem about Messiahship, this problem of who Jesus says that he is. So in chapter 8, where we, where we read our scripture this morning, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and fail to hear? And do you not remember when I broke five loaves for the 5,000? He was teaching there were 5,000 people and they got hungry. And then he says, and how many broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, what? Twelve. They had 12 full baskets of leftover food, having taken five loaves and fed 5,000 people. And that's, that's a pretty good miracle, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. That's what Messiahship looks like. That's what they knew, right? If you're the king and you can do everything, you come to the people who are hungry and you feed them all. And you have more than enough left over. In the same way that he had 180 gallons of wine at the Cana uh, wedding, more than enough. This is who Messiahship looks like. That's what it looks like. And then the scripture goes on in Mark 8, if you have your Bibles or you're following along. There were seven loaves of bread for 4,000 people. And Jesus asked him again, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? And they said to him, seven. So you have these big, huge feeding miracles back to back. So Jesus takes how many loaves? Seven. And he feeds how many people? Now, for those big math majors, that's 9,000 people in one chapter with 12 loaves of bread. That's pretty... John, that's a pretty good feat, right? I mean, she she worked hospitality for us for a long time. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good stewardship uh, of of the disciples' bread, right? So so let's see what happens. You've got these two huge feeding miracles, um, and they all happen... Um, down here along the Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up. Here's Nazareth, his home. He goes up here and he turns those uh, you know, huge 30-gallon uh, buckets of water into wine. 
Uh, six of them, so he makes 180 gallons of wine right here. He goes over here. People are following him. He's teaching along the seashore. Uh, this is where Mary Magdala, he meets her. Um, that's why it's called Magdala today. You can go there. And he's feeding 5,000 people. Uh, he's feeding 7,000 people or 4,000 people. And so, you know, 9,000 people along her. Peter's mom lives here. Um, so he's hanging out here. This is a fishing village. And then, if that weren't enough, he moves on up here to Bethsaida. Okay? Say that with me. It is called Bethsaida. Now, if you didn't think the, the feeding miracles were, co- were cool, watch this. Uh, so they come to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man to him, and they begged him to touch him. And so Jesus takes the blind man by the hand. He leads him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes, he laid his hands on him. And he asked him, can you see anything? By the way, those of you who have been a part of healing ministries know that this is a very good model for prayer. When you're praying for somebody for healing, you keep your eyes open. You're watching them, and you're asking them what they're feeling, what they're seeing, and, and if they're sensing God's movement. Okay, so this is what Jesus is doing. He, so he's, he's in the process of healing him, and he asks him, what do you see? Can you see anything? And the guy says, well, kind of. I can see people, but they look like trees walking. He was beginning to get a sight, but he didn't have it fully yet. So then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his eyesight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So Jesus heals a blind man. Now, if you're the disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus, and he feeds 5,000 people, he feeds 4,000 people, you walk up a ways, and he heals a blind man, you think you're in pretty good company. Right? I mean, this is a guy you want to follow. Everywhere he goes, good things happen. This is somebody you want to be a part of. And so Jesus asked them, after these three huge miracles, who do you say that I am? What do other people say that I am? What, what do people say about me? And so as Jesus goes on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which is on north a good ways, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist had a huge following at that time. Then others said Elijah. Elijah was uh, the most known, foremost prophet uh, in their history. And still others said one of the prophets. And so Caesarea Philippi, on their way, um, is all the way up here. See it up here? And then the water, this is a beautiful, lush area. It comes all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. So he's going, this is the last miracle. So it's like miracle, 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 miracle. And then they go all the way up here. And Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Up there, um, this is a video um, of our group um, when we were there last summer. I mean, it's just a beautiful, lush area. It's not like the desert at all, is it? And so uh, the Spirit drives him to the desert. Uh, he's tempted. He passes all those uh, tests. And Jesus says, well, I'm, I'm going on vacation. I'm going up here. It's a much, much prettier place. Uh, you can go there today. Um, I don't have permission to show this photo to you, but I like it. I'll use it anyway. Uh, there's my wife uh, and Alan uh, with their feet in the water. It's very cold. It's from the snowmelt uh, of Mount Hermon. Um, and it's, a, it's just a lovely, lovely place. And so it's in this beautiful scene that Jesus asks them. He says, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him, the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And if you look in Matthew and Luke, it goes on. Uh, and it says, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. That's exactly who I am. That's exactly who I am. But there's a problem with this. Have, have, you, have you ever had this happen in your life or in your family or with your spouse? You say the exact same thing and you mean two completely different things. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Messiah. He says, you're right. And then Peter, uh, Jesus goes on and teaches them that the Son of Man, a name that he would use for himself, must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests 
and the scribes and be killed. And after three days be risen again. I'm pretty sure, if you've been in those kind of conversations with me, uh, when, if your child or someone you love said, oh, I'm going to be rejected, there's going to be great suffering, and I'm going to be killed, you, you don't even really hear the, oh, and be raised three days. You, you've stopped listening by that point. I mean, you were just completely taken back. And here's the problem. When Peter thought of Messiah, he thought pleasure and comfort and reigning. Plenty of food, the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk. And Jesus says, the Messiah will suffer. That's a problem. When Peter thought of Messiahship, he thought the world will love me. The world will love him. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to walk in and everybody's going to know his name and he is going to be lifted up. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to be rejected. And if you're any person who's in the same party, you're in the same group, you're in the same deal, you know pretty well that whatever's going to happen to the master is going to happen to you sooner or later. So this is very difficult now. And not only that, where Peter sees life, right? Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says no, and, and it includes death. And Peter's had enough. Peter saw miracles, healing, and he expected irresistible conquest, friends. Irresistible conquest. That there wouldn't even be a fight. In the same way that David walks out, he slays Goliath, and and they win, and nobody else even has to raise a sword. Jesus is going to do that. You see, what we can't understand, we, we were never raised in a religious system like this. Messianic suffering was incompatible with Jewish expectation. They've been waiting for this for more than a thousand years. Moses in Egypt is 1,300 years earlier. And God opens the sea and, and takes them out. It was beyond their imagination that the Messiah could be anything other than glorious in every way. And Jesus was saying no. So, now that this is on the table, they're going to talk clearly about what uh, Jesus is about to do. There are two responses. And the first one is from the leader of the church, Peter. Uh, in, in a different gospel, um, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, You are Peter the rock, and upon you I will build my church. And so you, you might say that Jesus and Peter are best friends. They're as close as they can be. This is the one that he's going to leave the church to. They love each other very much. They're not angry with each other. They love each other, and they're trying to move forward together. And so as, as any good friend would do, you don't want to embarrass your leader in front of anybody. He takes him aside. And he begins to rebuke him. He, he pulls him over and he says, hey, Jesus, this is not a good idea. Right? This, this, is, this isn't what you want to do. And so Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now, now what we can't see uh, as, as English speakers is that the Greek word is epitomeo. It's the same word that the Bible uses every time that Jesus or someone else would silence a demon. It's the same word that Jesus' own family used when he was going to go in ministry. And they, they said, no, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's doing. And this is a very strong word, friends. Maybe you've had somebody in your family about to do something courageous or heroic. And you didn't really want them to do that. You, you take them aside. You don't necessarily embarrass them in front of everybody. You just you're like, hey, that's not a good idea. Anybody know who this is? That is Lydia. She was born a few hours ago in Southeast Asia. 
the fourth child of friends of ours who worked there. This is Lydia. So if you were on your fourth child and, and you were going to give birth and you could give birth at the Lakeside Renaissance Women's Center or Southeast Asia with a midwife, with 1950s kind of care, do you think someone might come to you and say, that's not a good idea? Right? These voices are still around. Um, I was uh, on the phone last night with her parents um, regularly, and, and the father was seated outside in, in sort of this 19... I was like, well, are there photos? He's like, no, they don't let dads back over here yet. It doesn't work like that. And I just wonder if you have something in your life that God's calling you to, something that's difficult, something that other people might think, that's not a good idea, Jesus. That can't be my calling. It's not easy. It's not pleasurable. It doesn't bring me fame or notoriety. That can't be right. Lydia's fine, by the way. Seven pounds, seven ounces, 20 inches long or so, maybe 21. Pretty girl. Looks just like all the rest of them. No denying them. The second response, though, is Jesus. He turns around and rebukes Peter. But notice, he doesn't take Peter aside, right? So, So Peter takes Jesus aside. He's like, look, this isn't a good idea. And Jesus goes, hold on, turn around here. So in front of all the disciples, right, this is no longer a private conversation. It's a very public declaration. Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples and he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. We all do. We all do. But why Satan? Doesn't that seem a little extreme? Like, come on, Jesus, like that's a little hard. Well, no. Because we need to not read any hostility into that response. We need to read the truth into that response. And that is that Jesus saw Peter's words as a continuation of Satan's temptation that we looked at last week. It's the same thing. The same way that the devil took him up and said, hey, all of this can be yours and you can bypass the cross. You don't have to do any of that. Just follow me. Just bend the knee to me and it's all going to be good, Jesus. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to have any pain. You don't have to have any hardship in your life. You're God. Just do what you want to do. And Peter, his closest friend, was actually tempting him. And if you look closely, Peter's not really saying anything that Jesus doesn't pray himself in the garden. These are real temptations for Jesus. The scripture says that Jesus knows everything about you, knows every struggle that you have. In the same way that you're tempted, Jesus was tempted. He gets it. He knows that. William Barclay, uh, one of my favorite theologians, I find him very helpful. He says, it's a strange and terrible thing. That the tempter sometimes speaks to us in the voice of a well-meaning friend. I always get a little nervous around Sunday school and small group time. Because I wonder how often we have unwittingly stepped in the middle between what God was trying to do with one of our friends because it was so painful. Does it make sense? I see it happen all the time. Somebody says, well, I'm really going through a hard time. And, and most of the time, without even thinking about it, we're like, oh, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. We'll pray that that stops. And God's like, don't. This, he's so close. He's so close to finally turning this around. He's been struggling with this for 30 years. And he's this close to being in enough pain to finally stop that stupidity. And we as a church, friends, we need to be able to listen and say, God, what are you doing? And how do we come alongside you 
and not get in front of what you're doing and not lag behind in what you're doing. But to be with people and say, we'll pray with you. But it sounds like God's doing something with you. You probably ought to pay attention to that. Because the reality is maybe his family or her family has been praying about this for 30 years. that They would finally get to that point where they would make a turn. We have to be very careful, friends, that we don't accidentally step in front and say, oh, no, 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 that can't be God's will. That sounds hard. My experience is that God's will is almost always hard. With moments at the mountaintop, but a lot of time in the valley to get to that mountaintop. Isn't that your experience too, those of you who walk with the Lord? That there's long times in the valley and moments at the mountaintop. So Jesus speaks plainly. He calls the crowd to him along with the disciples and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, my apprentice, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's not a piece of jewelry back then, friends. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul? Lose their soul. Still happens. We have largely become, in my opinion, a, a people of comfort and pleasure. I don't know that America is so much a Christian country anymore as it is a hedonist country. We love our air conditioning more than we do Jesus. Just ask any Oklahoman in the depth of August when it's 108. You see, followers of Jesus must deal with what Jesus is saying for us. The realities of what it is to follow him in the times that are glorious and good and fun and the times that are hard. And we tend to think that if Jesus Christ compels us to do something and we are obedient to him, he will lead us to great success. We should never have the thought that our dreams of success are God's purpose for us. In fact, his purpose may be exactly the opposite. Now, you might think that that was contemporary, but that was written in the late 1800s. This notion has been plaguing the world for a long, long time. We always want Messiah to be easy. We always want Messiah to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords and Easy Street. That's what we all want. But that's not what Jesus says he came to do. So he goes up on the mountain and Jesus is revealed with the two major figures of the faith, Elijah and Moses. So six days later, um, some people believe this was at Mount Tabor. Others believe that it was at Mount Hermon because it's closer. After this encounter, they actually go up to the mountain and Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John, the inner three. And he leads them up to a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. He, it's, it's amazing what they're seeing. His clothes become dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. They're having an out-of-mind, out of out-of-world, heavenly God experience. And, and right alongside Jesus is Elijah and Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus. Not, not like, who are you? No, they're like, hey, Jesus, how you doing? It's good to see you again. Blows their minds. Because Moses has been dead for more than a thousand years. Here he is. What does Peter do in response? He makes a hut. Now that seems kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? But here's the thing. If you're, if you're Peter, if you're James or John, you want what we all want. And that is, oh, this is awesome. We're not leaving here. This is the deal. You all have been to that concert. You've been to that church camp. You've been to that last night of camp. You've been to that moment where we're like, no, 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 no. We're staying here. This is it. This, this, not, nothing's changing right now, right here. This, this is where it is. 
And of course, the same thing happens that happened at Jesus' baptism. That is, no, no, no. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. You're not staying here. This is a beautiful moment. And yes, it reveals who Jesus is. But now Jesus is going to be sent from that mountain to the cross. So that you and I and the whole world might live. That we might still be talking about this 2,000 years later. And I would submit to you, if they stayed on the mountain, we wouldn't be here today. We just wouldn't be here. Anybody can stay on the mountain. So Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, is it, it's good for us to be here, right? Let us make three dwellings. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This would be awesome. And he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. I mean, they just didn't know what to do. And a cloud overshadows them, and from the cloud there comes God's voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Isn't that the way our vision works? That our vision is normally kind of about what we want, about our pleasure, about our comforts, about what we think other people might want. So we're, we're going to build you a little hut, a little lean-to for Jesus. I mean, I would love to do that. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to do that? You're having a great spiritual experience, and so you look for sort of the least common denominator, the least expensive route to say, I love you. You know, the, the birthday parties you don't really want to go to, uh, or the anniversary or whatever, you're like, oh, what can I get? Okay, I'm going to run by Walmart, and here, you know, here's something. We, we all have that in us. Jesus' vision is much grander, much greater than that. One of the things that I absolutely love uh, about other countries outside of our country, I love our country, but one of the things that we can learn from other countries is that we're so young. I mean, we're a very young country. And so if you go to Barcelona, Spain, you can see something that you you can't see in America, and that is um, buildings that were never finished in someone's lifetime. They happened over generations of people's lifetime. The vision outlasted any one person. Uh, those of you who've been with me a long time know I, I, I talked about this about seven years ago. Now, there's a man by the name of Antony Gaudi. In 1882, he began construction of the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, Spain. But it wasn't even his idea. It started under a different architect, Francisco Paula de Villar. And the next year, when VR resigned, Gaudi takes over as the chief architect. And he transforms the project. It wasn't even his original idea, but he takes it, he models it. He, he's listening to the master carpenter, Jesus, and he begins to roll out this vision that was much bigger than he could ever finish in his lifetime. And from 1915, Gaudi devoted himself almost exclusively to his magnum opus here in Barcelona, Spain, the Sagrada Familia. Now, now this is um, under construction in 1905. And after Gaudi's death, the work would continue under the direction of another architect until interrupted by the Spanish Civil War. Can you imagine? There's a project, they have a civil war in the middle of it, and then it continues on afterwards. That's a vision. And so if you were to go inside the Sagrada Familia today, he intended the interior to resemble a forest with inclined columns like branching trees, and it created a simple but sturdy structure And Gaudi applied all of his life's work, all of it, all of his previous experimental findings in this project. And he created a church that is at once structurally perfect, harmonious, and breathtaking. Breathtaking, isn't it? It was consecrated by the Pope in 2010, and it is a working basilica. And at the time of his death, at age 73, in 1926, 1926, less than a quarter of the project was complete. Only 25% of the vision had even been done. 
It's remarkable, isn't it? A vision that was given and then expanded and then gone on. But it's not over. The Sagrada Familia has three facades uh, dedicated to the birth, the passion, the glory of Jesus. And you can see the next parts uh, will actually come up and you, you can see them uh, the way it will look when it's completed in 2026. All of it is to honor Jesus. 18 towers plus the, the central tower. So this will not surprise you. This is on my bucket list. Before I die, I, w- I want to go see this thing. It is amazing. The power of a vision that God will place in another person. And you know people looked at God and like, you have lost your mind. There's no way you're going to see that complete. And he's like, no, I won't. I won't. But we pray God will. To his glory, to his honor, to his name. Can you imagine it? You know what the scripture says? Now to him who by the work at power within us is able to accomplish abundantly more, far more than all we can ask or imagine, far more than we can even think or imagine, to him, to Jesus, be glory to the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And you know that that Jesus wanted to stay on the mountain. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain, but the vision that Jesus had was much greater than his life. It took him to the cross. It takes him to Easter. So that all the world, all the people, all the time can be saved by a vision much greater than himself that would outlive him. And I believe that God has placed a vision in you and for us as a church that only you can fulfill and equally important that that we begin to pray it out and that we don't get in, in the way of other people's callings and visions because we love them because they're close to us. So the question is this, what is God calling you to that requires suffering? I'm sure that that Gaudi enjoys watching the Sagrada Familia come up out of the ground, but I wonder, you know, isn't the real work when he's at the foundation, when he's covered in mud and muck and modeling clay, when he's gutting it out, when no one else thinks it's possible and he has to stand in the face of all his detractors? Isn't that where the real work is done? And equally important, how will you support another's calling? I know some of you in this very room have children who are seriously considering military service. But they feel called to it. And how easy would it be for you to simply say to your son or daughter, just let somebody else do that. Right? That's a very real thing. Out of love, out of compassion. We all have those sorts of things in our life where our children or those that we love are called to something hard or difficult, and it's a true calling from Jesus. It is our job to come alongside them, not to get between them and what God is wanting to do with them. So I invite you to consider these two things this week. Step into your own calling and to be supportive of the other folks calling around you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you do call us to wonderful things, to life-changing things, to world-changing things. And we thank you that your vision is among us and around us. And we pray that you would bring it to pass in and through and around us. We pray that 
Um, like the disciples, that we would see you who, for who you really are, and that ultimately we will get it, that we will share your good news, that we will be about your healing business, about spreading the good news to all the world in your time and in your way and by your power and your grace. And where our words fail us and we don't even know how to pray, we thank you for teaching us even how to do that by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.